When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hello, welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business, where we're putting the business back in lady business. Today, we have Allie McCartney. She is the Managing Director of UBS. Hello and welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you, JJ. Thank you. I'm excited to have you here. I love all these backgrounds. She's in Montauk right now, and this is her house, and it just like looks so calming and peaceful. Um, that's why I have pink in the background of mine. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like let's be brand appropriate, eh? Um, anyway, Ali, um, tell us, like, you know, how you got to be a managing director at UBS. Okay, so um, I grew up in a family that, quite frankly, was dominated by the women in the family. Both my grandmother and my mother went back to school and pursued a career really in their 40s. And so I had gone, basically, it was like I went to school with my mom uh, when she was learning finance when I was in my young teens. And I sort of fell in love with this intersection between capital markets and money and emotions. My dad is a psychiatrist, so I've sort of grown up as a financial psychiatrist, right? Money is super emotional, whether you have it or a lot or you don't have any. Um, it, you know, it, it tends to be a very emotional issue among families. And long story short, I sort of always knew that I wanted to be at that intersection. I went to business school when I was very young specifically to do that. And when I landed on Wall Street at really at, at 23, pretty early in my life, I was quite amazed by A, how few women there were around right. me. Just yeah. because of the way I grew up, I sort of, uh, it was almost like what your kids and my kids go through, like reverse yeah. feminism, where they're like, can men do everything? Oh, okay, that's I nice. Um, and <laughs> so I sort of, I landed on Wall Street and I was both fascinated by how few women there were and when I did, I had this wonderful role where I got to meet all of the managing directors of, at that point, Lehman Brothers. And what that meant was that about one out of every 30 people I met was a woman. And these were all the people running the firm. And I was both fascinated by their own journey, like you're asking me right now. Mm -hmm. But also, even though how technically a lot of people had very similar balance sheets, asset levels, um, how different the women thought about their money, how the perspective was quite different, and about how they got to where they were. And 
you know, that has really colored my career since then. And when I was about, mm, when I was probably in my 30s and before the financial crisis, so let's say maybe, you know, 2004, 5, 6, and 7, mm-hmm. this research started to hit the world about the changing demographics of wealth in the world and in our country and about how, you know, the average person with wealth in the country had previously been a male baby boomer who had either inherited it or grown it. Right. Um, And they were the people making decisions about the country politically and economically. um, But how this combination of uh, women living longer than men, what we call gray or silver haired divorce, which is divorce well into people's 50s, 60s and 70s when there is a lot of financial wealth accumulated and women starting their own businesses, women being 50% of graduate school. There was this huge demographic shift that we're about in the middle of now, which says that 60 cents of every dollar in this country that's spent is spent by a woman between the ages of 40 and 80. Mm-hmm. And that um, you know a huge amount of wealth in the next few years, over 50% will be managed by women. And so the intersection of A, how women think about that differently, what products and services we need, how our lives and our minds work, but also how the majority of my business world, the people that provide financial acumen and advice didn't look like them, right? right? And that everything that I had learned and been told about relationship type businesses and, and finance in particular said that you work with people you like, you trust, and that make you money in that order. People have an affinity for and like and trust people that look and feel like them. And so there became this huge um, imperative for, for Wall Street to sort of, you know, get their ass in gear and get, you know, women and people of color and people of all ages to be able to face off against that huge amount of wealth and that has been what I have done for my whole career, but it, it wasn't until I think we got into the last number of years and a lot of the cultural movements, Time's Up, Me Too, George Floyd, that have sort of um, created a lot of, of enthusiasm, commitment to, and awareness around diversity and all the aspects of it, that this concept of what I actually do and what I practice, financial feminism, became cool to anyone but me and my mom. Right. <laughs> so, so tell me what you do on a day-to-day basis then. I mean, those are all such amazing facts. Like what was the one statistic about between 40 and 80%, 60%? 60% again? of every dollar spent in this country, whether it's on back to school, whether it's on luxury yeah. items is spent by basically a mature woman, right? Yeah. I mean, think about that. Think about that, yeah. the collective buying power we have. Yeah. Think about the power we have to, to create the products and services, JJ, that you do and that you feature because yeah. you're spending on things that we need. Exactly. Um, and if so we that's, really consciously spend it, how can we move that needle? Because money is power. Put it and in if we there. consciously spend it and if we consciously invest it, right? Yeah. So if, if many more women do what you and I do naturally, which is say, I'm going to invest in companies and people who resonate with me and my life. And so that that means that I, you know, of the 15 angel investments I made, those 15 angel investments are in things that touch my life and that are run and conceived and powered by women. And that is absolutely power. 
Um, so what do I actually do on a day-to-day basis? So uh, I run a team of 10 people. We manage $3 billion. Uh, we do every aspect of what I would call financial and life management for families. Some of those families are a single person. Some of those families, we have one that is four generations of people. Yeah. Because if you think about the, the sort of interconnectedness of money and family values and philanthropy, which is one of the wonderful things that I, I get to help families with. And so I help them do everything from budget to invest to choose how to give their money away, to discuss the most constructive way to bring up children with wealth. Um, The meat of what I do is work with families that have wealth that will outlive them. So wealth that will be what we call intergenerational. And, you know, that at this point in the per the U.S. estate tax code is defined by those families that have about twenty three million dollars and up. Um, I also work a lot with entrepreneurs who are starting companies as they build wealth to encourage them, especially the women, to hold on to as much ownership and equity and decision making power as they can and to encourage them to put in place both um, services and protocols in their own business and in their own life that help them get emotional and money control. Because as you said, um, money money is power. And money can mean different things to different people. And, and one of the things that, that I've always been fascinated about and that sort of has led me to where I am is I have kept a running list of the words that men and women have used oh, yeah. uh, to describe money and investments. Yeah. Um, and I've kept that throughout my entire career. And I will tell you that the, the words, and this is irrespective, again, of whether you're investing $10 a month or whether you're investing $10 million a month, the words that women use are security, mm-hmm. safety, mm-hmm. family, uh, influence, um, sustainability. The words that men use are often power, agency. Mm-hmm returns, trades. And so you can already see that there's sort of this different relationship. And so what we've tried to do is build a team, especially that whether it's your, you know, whether talking about and and dealing with making financial decisions is something that you feel super comfortable about, or whether, and this is certainly the case for many of the women I deal with, or whether it's something new and scary and anxiety provoking, um, in the case of, you know, death of a spouse, divorce, issues of children, all of those things can come up. So we try to make it a very, what I would call sort of lingo free, uh, high touch, warm educational experience, as opposed to, I think, what most of us think about when we turn on the financial media or, you know, watch a movie about Wall Street. Right. So when women come to you, I mean, is there a certain amount of money that they have to have or understanding about money? So, no. So the beginning, the, the first thing is, and I think this is super important, is you do not have to have a, an understanding or an education in money. Right. And I think women more than men, both the data and my experience prove that there is this chip on our shoulder that says, if we are not comfortable and 
um, self um, and sort of, or can say, I am educated, then we wait. We don't talk about it. We don't yeah. ask about it. And that's a really dangerous place to be, right? Yeah. And, and I'll share one survey with you. There was a, a, a well-known survey done a number of years ago that basically took um, men and women of the same age, socioeconomic level, education level, and at, did only two things with that population. First, they gave them a financial literacy test. Second, at the completion of taking that financial literacy test, they asked them to rate themselves on one, I have no exposure or comfort, 10, I am absolutely expert in financial literacy and understanding. You probably won't be surprised to hear that the, the outtake was as follows. One, on average, the women tested higher than the men in the objective financial literacy right. test. And two, they scored materially lower in their self-assessment of how competent they were. Right. Right. So the gig is that if you come to me, A, I promise you know more than you think you do. B, we're going to spend a lot of time educating you, not necessarily so you know everything, because that's the whole point of outsourcing parts of your life to different people, mm -hmm. myself and my team included, but so that you feel that you have enough intelligence, knowledge, and agency to feel good about the decisions you're making and to move yourself forward. And that also is a sliding scale. Right. Um, and then B, when we work with clients and we tend to work with clients that have about, I would say $3 million and, and up on our team, and we partner with other people or direct them to different um, robo-advisors or low-cost services online that can be helpful if you don't meet that bogey, which mm -hmm. the majority of the world obviously does not. But what we're, you know, what we're going to do is we're also going to help you figure out how to create your own money posse and socialize wealth, because that's mm -hmm. another big part of this. I've always noticed working on trading floors that for men, um, investment knowledge is a currency that they trade and share. Yes, and true. Male clients invest in a deal or a company, public or private, they tend to come with their own posse. And women don't socialize like that. And the importance of socializing is A, that you learn, you create that safety net, you do start to do away little by little by little with the taboos that our daughters and sons have built around money. And whether it's scary or exciting or opportunistic, or there's a gender attributed to either. And so, you know, really the entirety of what we do and what I try to put out there that's bigger than my clients is some sort of, of platform and scalability that says, you don't have to know everything. We're all vulnerable. We're all learning. Let's learn together and let's change the way that the world thinks about money talk and money and earning where it comes to women so that we can ask for and demand what we deserve. And then we can uh, invest that in ways that fulfill our values as well. Right. When you And when you are representing these women and you're having these conversations with them, are you mostly seeing that they're like more risk averse than men or like risk averse in investing in companies? Like, 
Yeah. What, what are your observations there? That's a great question. I think that, you know, there is this um, narrative out there that women are more risk averse than men. I'm not actually sure that's true. And the other thing I can tell you is that there are certain countries in which women are much more programmed to take risk. If you look at data around India, women take a lot more risk. If you look at data around Japan, Japan, the majority of uh, bank accounts and investment accounts tend to be run by women because it is viewed as part of household responsibilities to deal with budgeting in the household and then any extra money. So there are a lot of cultural constructs. But what I would say is that the narrative in this country, which is almost as important as a reality, is that women are more risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is certainly true that women start investing later than men, start building wealth later than men. And especially in environments where like today, if you put a dollar in your checking account, you get a dollar or 99 cents of purchasing power out one, two, three years later with zero interest rates, it's super punitive, right? Every day that you're investing and building and staying in the market is really, really constructive and moves you towards the goal of having a nest egg that gives you autonomy and agency in your personal professional life. So it's really all about when you start and that you take some modicum of risk and women do seem to be starting later and um, whether because of issues around confidence, whether because of issues around simply hours in the day, um, right. seem to be sort of pushing it to the bottom of the to-do list in a way that does them a disservice, does yeah. us a disservice. Yeah. Talk, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because people keep hearing this and I think it's a point that people can hear over and over again. Cause I went through it myself. It's like the money that you have in savings is yeah. not getting you anywhere. And so yeah. people just think that the market, they put it in the market and sometimes think that, Oh, it could just crash and it can go away, you know? And, and usually this money is not money that you need right away. So exactly. Yeah. So we, we counsel people to think about, building and protecting financial means in the following way. And we refer to it at UBS as a three L's, liquidity, longevity, and legacy. Liquidity is exactly what you said. If I lost my job tomorrow, how much would I need to make sure my family and I are okay? Mm-hmm. And that is not money that you take risk with, mm-hmm. regardless of what your checking account is yielding you. That is money that is your rainy day fund, you're under the pillow. Should you be um, lucky, fortuitous enough to be able to get to the next one, then we're into longevity. Longevity can be money that you invest yourself. It can be money you invest via your employer in a 401k or other um, available services that are provided to you, money you put away for your own retirement and IRAs. And that's, you know what, there's going to be a point in my life where I would... I'm not going to be earning money. I'm not going to have inflows. I'm not going to have inbound cash. So I need to build for that. That is market investment money. And we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. The third is this concept of legacy. And that's for the small portion of the population who will have money that is going to be above and beyond their spending needs for their lifetime. 
Right. And what do they want to impart to the world that they will unfortunately and inevitably leave? Um, and that can be to their own children, that can be to climate change, that can be to, um, you know, anything. And then that you think about in a different way as well. Right. So let's get back to the middle bucket of, of the true investing. Mm-hmm. So yes, markets go up and down. Absolutely. But since the beginning of the measurable financial markets in our country, which I'm going to talk to you about via the S&P 500, which is sort of the, the largest and most visible and referred to source of stock market returns. The annual average return of the U.S. market for the S&P 500 is somewhere between 7.5% and 8.5%. Now, some years, that is going to be a massively negative number. Mm -hmm. Think about the financial crisis in 2008. Right. Some years, that's going to be a massively positive number. Think about last year when markets were up 20, 30, 40%. But on average, you should expect your money to grow at seven to eight percent if you take full market risk. So what that means is that if we all sort of have this nomenclature and at the back of our head, this rule of thumb that if you invest money at 10 percent, money doubles every seven years. Mm -hmm. Think about what putting money to work in a employee-sponsored retirement plan at 20 could and should do for you if you retire at 50, 60, 70 and live till 80, 90, 100 versus money at zero to 1% in a checking account in a country where inflation, whether we view it as temporary at this point or pervasive, tends to be about 2% a year. So the answer to that is you shouldn't have it all in checking. Having it all in the market is particularly risky and not something that most people I know feel comfortable with. But somewhere in the middle, a diversified portfolio of some stocks, some bonds should yield you on average 4 to 6% a year, which means that you know every 10 to 12 years, your money should, in theory, double. Right. Okay. Amazing. Thank you for that education. Sure. And what about investing like in, into like startups and female-founded companies? You advise them on that as well? I do. So, you know, there's, we just, the numbers that I touched on are numbers that I would say refer to largely the world of public investing. Right. So whether we're talking about UBS, whether we're talking about uh, Fidelity or Robinhood or E-Trade, these are the things that basically anybody with a U.S. social security number can go online, open an account and freely move into and out of shares of Apple, shares of Tesla, shares of Netflix. There's this whole other huge world that basically happens when you have um, additional money that you can afford not to have access to every day or every month, Mm -hmm. but you can afford to what we call lock up or not have liquidity to for months to years. The 
the part of that that most people understand is investing in startups, which is called venture investing. Or if you're you or me, you would say we're angels. We we bestow money on a founder and his or her company. We are they're angel investors that allows them to hire, to scale, to build a business. And the ultimate dream is that that business then becomes the Tesla and the Apple and has an initial public offering, an IPO, or is purchased by some bigger company. And that creates huge wealth for the founder and those angel investors. Mm -hmm. It is a much riskier type of investing. It's a much riskier type of investing because... Um, you are lending someone or giving someone your money for an indiscriminate unknown amount of time. Right. You are not getting the same level or access to information that you would if you were investing in public companies or stocks or bonds that have to report to the SEC and FINRA and all kinds of legal and regulatory in, um, uh, bodies. You're also not getting you know, mature, fully formed companies. You can get anything from a person and a business plan to uh, an app to somebody with two clients. So you're really investing a little bit from your gut, a little bit from your sort of knowledge base and view of the world, and a lot of it in the people or person's ability to take an idea or a product from idea to market. And it's an area that I personally love, a lot of my clients love. Some do it like I do it, which is Mm -hmm. investing in individual companies that I feel like I have a little bit of influence, a little bit of proximity and a network or some sort of um, speciality where I can actually help and nurture and grow the business. Some people take a very different approach, which is, this is very risky. I, you know, I don't know what I know, what, you know, I work in finance. I know a lot about robo-advisors, but I couldn't begin to tell you about health tech or elder care or electric vehicles. So I want to go to somebody who knows as much about those areas as I know about finance, and I want them to do this kind of investing with me. Right. But at the end of the day, this is a type of investment that my clients as what are called qualified purchasers and as individuals who have money that will outlive them do feel comfortable doing. And so I help them create that money posse around them to give them both access and insight into what could make this successful, what could make this not successful. Um, And for me, I find that very... um, valuable for my business because I'm investing in those next CEOs of big companies that are going to create value and um, get involved in, you know, philanthropic and financial feminist efforts. Um, I love seeing businesses grow like that. Um, I love, you know, I really love the feel. And so for me, I had, and for many of my clients, I have this barbell of very traditional market portfolios for myself and then angel investing. And I've definitely seen a lot of that in my career. And I see more now as people are ascribing values and social overarching issues to what they invest in. It's a way to both invest with your your heart and your wallet. Yeah, I mean, like how I see it too is, 
you know, people ask women all the time to, to give money to charities and never to invest, right? And then they're always asked to like invest in startups and net, and like, you know, maybe to charities, but not as much as women. Okay, let's say you give $25,000 away or for some table, you're never going to see that again, right? You're yeah. doing it. Like, so why not do it for no, women? You got it. Can't raise the money because we only get 2% of venture funding and like, like probably less of seed and fam- friends and family. You are totally right. And this has been, I'm very lucky to have a, a friend and a mentor named Kay Koplovitz, who started a company called Springboard Growth Ventures and Enterprises, which 20 years ago was really, you know, it, it remains the largest and was the first, you know, in the 1990s um, venture platform for women-owned businesses. And we actually wrote an article about this recently because we are part of the society that buys those tables and we happily see women raise paddles to give away money. And we have also spent decades trying to raise money for women businesses where there's the same social imperative and an amazing opportunity to get a return. And whatever is blocking that, whether it is culture or taboo or unwillingness to talk about it, we have to figure out how to get rid of that because it really, you see it in our business daily. I mean, 2%, you know, I think that number, unfortunately, I've heard has even gone down. It's gone down. Last it's gone year. down from last year. Yeah. And yeah. it is a, it is a real quandary, especially when you go back to that 60 cent number, Yeah. right? So if we are the ones spending money if you and I can both agree that we know better what we need to spend money on to make our clients and our lives function than my husband or my father, then how is it possible that that chasm and that distinction is so great when we have the economic power to change that? Yeah, true. I love it. I know. Um, I totally agree. And that's how I look at it too. So, uh, you know, look, you need this minimum $3 million to, you know, be able to work with you. How do women get to $3 million? It's the little stuff. So, you know, there are certainly those events we all hear about where someone starts a company and they started at zero, they work for five years and, you know, take nothing. And then they have a unicorn Yeah, and then they're a billionaire. Those exist, but quite honestly, the majority of people have a discipline, have an investment discipline. And so going back to some of the things we talked about, if you're 25 years old and have your first job and your employer matches some of the money you can put away in your 401k, so you are basically getting IRS privileges of putting income tax-free money away for your own retirement 50 years hence, and you're in a situation where an employer is actually going to give you additional free money on top of that. Yeah. And you say, look, you know, I'm a young person living in New York. I can barely keep up with what I'm trying to do. $10 a week, $20 a week. This concept of what is referred to in my industry as dollar cost averaging, which just simply means instead of saying once a year, I have a thousand dollars and I'm going to invest it today, every day or every week or every month, I'm going to take 10, 15, a hundred, a thousand dollars and put it in, for example, the S&P 500, that US market. You would be amazed that the power of compounding of money, the growth, 
the education it provides, but even more importantly, the discipline it provides. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I try to get people to help to think about this is like, most people I know do not have a degree in nutrition or physiology, but right. we all know that exercise and eating healthy is good for us, right? Yeah. So we go out and we choose what we eat and we put some greens on the side and we look at our Fitbit and our Apple and we say, yeah. okay, I've, all, you know, I've been sitting on my butt all day. I'm going to walk. And we don't need a degree. We don't need to be educated to do that. It's the discipline of making tiny decisions on a daily basis, even though we're not experts. Exactly. I think that is the exact same discipline and analogy yeah. that people should have for financial discipline and investing. Yeah, no, it's a great one. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I don't have, I could have, you know, talk about this all day long, but unfortunately you um, have to go. I'm sure you have a very busy schedule. Um, I always like to end with uh, one question because I think it resonates with everyone, which is what is the worst advice that you receive from a man? There's been a lot of bad advice, full stop. But yeah. this one, uh, this one was my favorite one because um, it was it was such a tough thing to hear, and it was so clearly false. But everyone around me so clearly was deferential to the person who gave it to me. Right. Um, and it was I had the pleasure of having my company go bankrupt, Lehman Brothers, yeah. having my New York apartment on the market and being pregnant and starting a new job all at the same time. Wow. And um, I was very visibly pregnant. I was probably a month or two away from going out on maternity leave. And I had been at this company for sort of maybe seven or eight months and I had kicked butt. Right. I had kicked butt. The, the world had just ended. There was a lot of opportunity in that, strangely. And um, I was having a conversation about my upcoming leave and my compensation that year. And I said, well, you know, the really fantastic thing for me is that, you know, I never imagined that I would have a year in which I'd be starting a family and I'd have one of my best years um, in terms of my profit and loss, in terms of my business. And I sort of got this head thing like this. And the person said, that's really interesting. You know, I would urge you to focus on the fact that there are different years for different things. And this for you is a year that you should think about as being a year for you and your family. And then next year, we can maybe focus on it being a year for compensation. It's so condescending. You're like, thank you for telling me what I should be thinking about my family. It was really, it was literally just delivered amazing year for you. So you're welcome. It was beautiful. And, you know, and I'll tell you a couple of things about it. It was, it gave me a lot of insight into the way people around me thought, um, which I was challenging, but it, it sort of, it, one thing it did help me do is that I have had a lot of jobs within the context of an investment bank or a financial organization. And my first job and what I hope will be my last job running this team have both been um, based on having a, a profit and loss, a very visible, tangible, inarguable monetary contribution to an organization. So there's no wiggle room anymore. It's not 
how did you do for the firm? How did you feel? How did we feel about you? It was a lot of these things that were sort of said to me and that I observed in the middle years of my career really just made me all that hungrier to be back in a position where I had the training and control and autonomy over my own compensation, as scary as it was going from earning, you know, a fair amount of money working for somebody else to earning zero and having to rebuild. But just what that gives you at the end of the day in terms of being in control of your destiny has has been one of the more important things that I share with women as they make career decisions and family decisions along the way. Yeah. So well said. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Allie. Oh my God, love you, lady. Taking care of lady business. Always. If people want to find you, hire you, get use your services, how can they do that? It's pretty simple. Um, you know, if you're on Instagram, I'm Financial Feminist NYC. Um, otherwise, you know, my job is to be visible. I do a lot of television, so just uh, Google Allie McCartney or email Allie A L L I dot McCartney at UBS.com. And um, I will pretty much give anybody a couple minutes of my time to, to help and educate and, and learn what they're about. So please take advantage. Amazing. Look in it to anybody listening today. Hope I'm sure you learned a lot because I know I did. Um, please like subscribe, let us know anything else and another topic that you want to hear about. And until then, I'm Jennifer Justice.